Friends, this is the word of God to us this morning, able to change our lives. This is the Lord Jesus. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided against three, against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother and mother, mother in law against daughter in law, and daughter in law against mother in law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud, Rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid very last penny. You join with me in praying. It's the verse from famous song that's been on my heart this morning in the lead up to this message. Let's pray. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to honor you, my soul. Rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ears. Amen. Anthony Galway and Rob Harris from the City Morning Herald on Thursday wrote the following. Russian airstrikes have destroyed a maternity hospital in the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol. Local officials say, prompting widespread condemnation from world leaders towards Russia's reckless actions. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said the direct strike on a hospital had caused colossal damage and left women and children trapped under rubble. Russia, Russia which denies targeting civilians during its 14-day war on its neighbor, had said it would hold fire to let civilians flee Mariupol and other besieged cities. But the city council said the hospital was hit more than once. 
The Russian occupying forces have dropped several bombs on the children's hospital. The destruction is colossal, it said on an online post, adding that it did not yet know any casualty figures. Regional Governor Pavlo Krylenko later said at least 17 people were wounded in the attack, including women in labor. You know, it wasn't that long ago that Charlotte and I were at Hornsby Hospital to welcome Isaac into the world. You know, giving birth is such a beautiful and harrowing experience, and mother and child are so incredibly vulnerable. And to consider being in that situation while being bombed multiple times, to be injured, buried in rubble, is such a heartbreaking thing to consider. You know, I've heard through friends this week of Christians in churches in Mariupol who are currently simply desperate, fetching seawater to make tea, drinking in the freezing cold, cooking on rocks outside, while the whole city is being leveled. And watching the death and destruction unfold of this war is so very sad. But it also makes me feel incredibly angry. Angry about the injustice of it all. I know I'm not alone in in feeling the way I feel about this war. There's this desire, I think, for things to put right that is true of all people. You know, we're different from any other creature in this world. We, We carry in our hearts, all of us, a sense of justice. And often times a longing for justice. A sense that things are not right in this world and that they need to be put right. You know, for people crying out for justice, the Bible has a wonderful hope. A wonderful hope and yet an often misunderstood hope. A hope to satisfy our deep longing for justice. A hope that our deep longing in fact points to. And that hope is God's judgment. God's judgment. You know, the idea of judgment in our culture often invokes this idea of judgmentalism. You know, a harsh and critical spirit. To our ears, judgment evokes thinking of Fire and brimstone. I didn't even know what brimstone meant. I had to look it up this week. Sulfur, apparently. Um, preaching that's kind of angry and judgmental. Preaching that indiscriminately both accuses people of wrongdoing without knowing them and promises harsh punishment that doesn't seem to match their crimes. See, the concept of judgment, it seems harsh. It seems cruel. It seems intolerant. And it seems profoundly unfair. And yet in the Bible, God's judgment is good news. And it's something to be hoped for. Because God is perfect in his justice. Earlier this year, we considered what makes uh, Judge Judy, the U.S. celebrity, attractive. And it's this kind of quick-fire justice with a double dose of hilarious entertainment that... That is just really fun to watch. And yet the problem with this kind of justice is that it's likely often wrong and often unfair. 
You know, imagine the justice of the God who is limitless in knowledge, limitless in wisdom, limitless in power and goodness and justice. His judgment must be unparalleled, unparalleled in its goodness, unparalleled in its mercy, unparalleled in its wisdom and unparalleled in its justice. You know, friends, to believe in a God who does not judge the evil in this world would be to believe in a God who is either powerless to deal with evil or simply does not care. Now, our sense of anger at the war in Ukraine points to the reality that we were made in the image of God. That God has a settled, continuous, and measured hostility to all the wrongdoing in the world. In the Bible, we call it the wrath of God. We call it the wrath because he cares. He's not disinterested or disengaged. He promises that one day he will fully judge the world and and put the world to right. See, God's solution to the evil of this world is judgment. You know, this week we find ourselves in what really is the second part of three weeks of teaching from Jesus on a similar theme. And given how uncomfortable we are culturally with the idea of judgment, you'd be forgiven for wanting to skip over this topic. But Jesus wants us to linger a little longer on the same point. He wants us to spend not one, not two weeks, but three weeks on this same topic. He wants to make sure that his disciples and the crowds listening in are ready for his coming kingdom. And so the aim of this passage, and uh, two weeks from now, uh, when we revisit Luke again, is very similar. You know, if you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, His Kingdom Comes. And really, I have two points that come from the text, uh, two points that are clear, I believe, in the text for us, but one hope for us this morning, which I've already mentioned, and that is simply this. Similar way to last week, and it'll be similar again in, in two weeks' time, that we'd be prepared for his kingdom to come. Well, let's dive right into my first point this morning. And it may surprise you, but it's entitled this, point number one, the judgment he longed to bring. The judgment he longed to bring. Why don't you read with me verse 49, the first uh, verse of this passage this morning. He says this, Lord Jesus says this. He says, I came... To cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I came to cast fire on the earth. What Jesus says here might be initially confusing if you're new to the Bible. I came to cast fire. I mean, what does that mean exactly? I mean, I came to cause the bushfires we've seen in Australia or the volcanic eruptions in Tonga or something like that. Well, fire has one clear meaning in Luke's gospel and that is this, that it is a symbol of judgment. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 9, we hear John the Baptist say the following. He says this, he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, in verse 17, he says, speaking of Jesus, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing root floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Fire is a picture of judgment in Luke's gospel. Again, in chapter 9, verse 54, um, it says of uh, the situation in which the disciples had been rejected in Samaria. 
It says this, it says, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want to tell us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. So fire in Luke is a symbol of judgment. Dividing between those who bear fruit and those who do not. Dividing between the edible wheat and the inedible chaff. Between disciples who have accepted Jesus and those who have rejected him. And here's the really interesting thing. Jesus says, I have come. Meaning, this is my purpose. This is my mission in coming. And it is to bring fire. It is to bring fire. And yet, at the same time, it's not yet. He says, I wish the fire were already kindled. Meaning, the fire is not yet kindled. But to find out why his judgment has yet to be kindled, we need to keep reading our passage. Why don't you read with me verse 49 and 50 again. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. See, Jesus describes a baptism which he has come to be baptized with. And yet on first read, it's a little bit confusing. What does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean John's baptism. That's already happened. There's a clue. And the clue is in the second half of the verse. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is this baptism? A baptism that leads to great distress for the Lord Jesus. Well, the baptism he is referring to is the flood waters of divine judgment he will endure on the cross. You see, in the Old Testament, God's divine judgment is often referred to with the language of water. Here's just one example of many from Isaiah chapter 30. It says this. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick smoke rising. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck. In this passage, both fire and water are symbols of God's judgment. His lips and tongue in his anger are like fire. His breath or ruach, spirit, in anger is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck. That means threatens your life. Daryl Bock describing this baptism says it this way. He says, thus the point of the metaphor is that Jesus faces a period of being uniquely inundated with God's judgment, an allusion to rejection and persecution. You see, Jesus in this moment is reminding his disciples of his absolute determination to go to the cross. See, the cross was not a tragic accident of history. The Lord Jesus is clear that he is willing to lay down his life for us upon the cross. The eternal son of God, born with Calvary in view, his gaze was fixed towards Jerusalem. He was determined to die upon that cross. 
And on the cross, Jesus was to endure a kind of baptism, to become an object of God's anger, judgment towards the evil in the world, to become cursed. See, God was in Jesus, taking his judgment for our evil upon himself. And Jesus was substituting himself for us. He was taking God's judgment in our place. Galatians 3.13 says it this way. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is, the wrath, the anger, the judgment of God that comes from breaking the law. By becoming a curse that is an object of wrath for us. For it is written, cursed, that is an object of God's wrath, is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Let's just, just, let's just take a moment as a church and slow down and stop and stare at what the Lord Jesus willingly endured for us. He says the fire of judgment that he longed to be kindled, which was his baptism. He longed for the waters of divine wrath to be poured out upon him. The shame, the mocking, the flogging, the stripping of his flesh, the nails through his hands and feet, the abandonment from his friends as he suffocates, barely even scratches the surface. You see, the God of the Bible is a perfect relationship. He is three in one. He is a father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. And there is no beginning and there is no end of this relationship. It is perfect love. And yet the scriptures say he humbled himself. And for the first time in history, he endured the wrath of the Father on the cross for us. This is the judgment he deeply desired to be kindled. Think about that. He longed for this. The greatest act of love the world has ever witnessed and ever will. The most perfect expression of the heart of God for his people. But notice this. Though he longs to endure this baptism, he is also deeply distressed by the thought of it. Read with me again that line in verse 50. He says, And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You know, we tend to only think of our Lord's suffering upon the cross. And yet Jesus shows us that he lived with great anguish in the anticipation of what he desired to complete for us. Anguish that would not be completed until his cry, it is finished. No wonder Isaiah writes of Jesus, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He lived with the burden of the task that was before him. You know, J.C. Ryle, writing in the 1800s, says this. He says of this passage, forever let us bear in mind that all Christ's sufferings on our behalf were endured willingly, voluntarily, and of his own free choice. They were not submitted to patiently merely because he could not avoid them. They were not born without a murmur merely because he could not escape them. 
He lived a humble life for 33 years. Simply because he loved to do so. He died an agonizing death with a willing and ready mind. He delighted to do God's will. He was distressed until it was accomplished. Let's not doubt that the heart of Christ in heaven is the same that it was when he was upon earth. He feels as deep an interest now about the salvation of sinners as he did formerly about dying in their stead. Jesus never changes. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. There is in him an infinite willingness to receive pardon, justify and deliver the souls of men from hell. It is a certain fact, if men would only believe it, that Christ is far more willing to save us than we are to be saved. Isn't that true? See, Jesus' baptism, his death upon the cross was the necessary kindling for the coming judgment of God upon the earth. It provided a means for God to extend forgiveness to those who turned to Jesus while still maintaining his justice. And it unleashed the beginning of his judgment upon the world through the sending of the Holy Spirit. And that is point number one. The judgment he longed to bring was first and foremost the judgment of God upon himself. Well, point number one leads us to point number two. And that is simply this. How to prepare for his coming. Jesus doesn't merely express his desire for the coming judgment of God, which will be kindled upon the cross. He also wants to prepare his disciples and the crowds to face it. And so Jesus lists three things that are absolutely crucial if we would be prepared for his kingdom. Firstly, he wants to prepare the crowds and his disciples by helping them to see that they will face a great cost. And that's the first of the applications of preparation, if you will, that we must prepare for a great cost. Why don't you read with me verses 51 to 53. Jesus says this. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You know, at first glance, these words are shocking. And they seem to contradict what we know of Jesus. I mean, what does it mean that Jesus has come to bring division? That he has come to divide up families? I mean, what? I mean, does he want to deliberately divide up families? I mean, it seems so wrong. I mean, what about the passages that refer to Jesus as the Prince of Peace? And what about the passages that refer to Jesus as bringing peace on earth that we sing every Christmas? I mean, if we find this offensive in our 21st century, highly individualistic post-Christian culture, I mean, at the time that this was written in Jesus' day where family and community were at the center of life, I mean, dividing up family was incredibly shameful. It would have led to a kind of death in the eyes of your community. How do we make sense of this? 
Well, the first thing to note that is all of the passages that speak of Jesus bringing peace refer to him bringing peace to those who have responded favorably to him. Those who receive him with repentance and faith. A couple of examples of many from Luke's gospel. Chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to this. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those, listen to this, with whom he is pleased. Again, chapter 7, verse 50. And he said, that's Jesus to the woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Nowhere in scripture does God promise peace to those who refuse Jesus. But peace unspeakably to those who do receive him. I think secondly we need to understand something of how the fire of judgment Jesus unleashed at Calvary has been working in the world. You know there is a final day of judgment that will one day come. But there's also an ongoing kind of judgment that the Bible speaks of. You know, for the last 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit has been working in a special way in our world, judging and dividing. You see, the natural state of all people in the world is rejection of God and pursuit of our own kingdoms, our own self-interest, not serving our maker as we should. And after his resurrection, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit softening hearts and convicting of sin and leading people to repentance and faith and spiritually transforming them by the power of his spirit to to share the same heart, to share the same inner convictions as Jesus. But for others, the Holy Spirit exercising judgment, in the words of Romans, hands them over, allows them to continue to follow their passions and desires uninterrupted and unchecked. And it's an act of judgment. It's an expression of God's wrath. You see, when someone responds to Jesus, it will often lead to dramatic changes in their closest relationships. The things you once perhaps enjoyed together, the Holy Spirit has changed your passions. You no longer enjoy them. You don't feel you can enjoy them and honor Christ at the same time. And the fruit of that is to the people you have interacted with your whole life, your closest friends and families, the fruit is offense. A new sense of care for others and the way they're living now matters deeply to you and you're moved to lovingly warn them about their choices and the fruit of that is offense. More Now you have an enemy, the devil. I mean, previously he wasn't concerned about you but now you're an opposition fighter and you are a threat and you are a target. You know, when Jesus comes into someone's life, a radical change begins, a spiritual new creation, and the fruit will often be something very costly. The vision even to the closest relationships you have. You know, I experienced this in a small way in and around my sister Christo's uh, marriage to her uh, partner Buster. She uh, had come out to us many years earlier and and uh, got married to another woman and we just felt we could not participate and celebrate something that was so grieving to us. And I remember the conversation I had with my little niece at the time who came up to me when I was, uh, during Christmas, catching up on the cricket score or Boxing Day test. And um, she said to me, Uncle Brendan, why is everyone so mad with you? And I said, oh, sweetie, thank you so much for asking. We love Crystal and Buster so much, but sometimes you have to do what you feel is right, even when other people get upset. 
Friends, division. Just like the words of Jesus said, John 15, 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If you're not prepared for this great cost, friends, it may surprise you. You may be tempted to question if you've made the right decision in following Jesus. And so that's point number one. We must prepare for the cost. Not just point number one, we must prepare for the cost. We also, point number two, we must prepare by paying careful attention to the age we're in. Read with me verses 54 to 56. And he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You're hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus has yet another Strong criticism, a a stinging rebuke for the crowds that have come to him. Verse 56, he calls them hypocrites. You remember uh, from a couple of weeks ago, a hypocrite is different from our culture. It's hypocrite is someone who's really judgy, you know, judgmental, but doesn't keep their own standards. A hypocrite in this context, in in the original Greek, it, it, it refers to someone who's wearing a mask, someone who's pretending, someone who's playing a part and not sincere. And so the obvious question is, What is about their example that's false, that's not sincere, that's playing a part? What Jesus is saying to them, you have no problem predicting the weather by paying careful attention to the natural world. You know, in Judea, clouds blowing in from the west carry water and they're a sign of rain. Wind blowing in from the south, the Negev, the desert, it means that heat is going to come. It's going to be a heat wave. Jesus is saying, you're able to study the basic patterns of the weather to determine the forecast, but you're only pretending to look at the signs that are pointing to the moment of history that you're in right now. You're only feigning interest in the things I've been saying and doing. Because a genuine study should clearly point to you to the time that you're in. And that is the time of the arrival of the long-promised Messiah of God. Jesus is saying it ought to be as easy as seeing clouds roll in and knowing there's rain to know that there is deep significance to who he is and what he's come to do. We actually need only give an honest consideration to his life and work. You know, firstly, you know, by way of application, I think I just wanted to address if you're here and you're not currently following Jesus, you know, I think it's possible to pass through life without giving an honest consideration to the life and work of Jesus. We all like to think of ourselves as rational people with an openness to the facts and, and opinions that are based on evidence and reason, and yet without ever giving serious consideration to the facts about Jesus. Now, early in life, to also, well, sorry, it's easy in life to also simply not ask the bigger questions of like, why am I here? And is there any purpose or means to life? Is there a God? Can he be known? Does my life matter? And rather than giving careful consideration to those big questions, we trust the opinions of our friends and family and colleagues, our community. The truth is there's quite simply no figure in history like Jesus. No one has been more influential than him. His life and teachings have changed the life of billions, including myself. 
And so the question I have for you, if you're, if you're not yet following Jesus, is this. Have you ever given time to honestly evaluate those claims? To study them with the same zeal that you study the weather? Maybe you can ask a friend to read the Bible with you, specifically a gospel about the life of Jesus, to study his life, to study his teaching. He'll surprise you. He'll challenge you. And if you receive him, he'll transform you. I'd love to invite you to join our Alpha course uh, starting on April 26th. Give just a handful of weeks of your life to studying Jesus, to taking him seriously. You know, we'd be wise to learn from the crowds and not simply feign interest and therefore be unprepared for his coming. But secondly, also, I think it has application if, if you're here and you're following Jesus. I think we'd also be wise to give careful consideration to the age we're in. You know, as a follower of Jesus, it's so easy to forget the moment of history we're in. I'm not talking about global politics or post-COVID world or post-Christian culture. I mean, it's so easy to be consumed with the details of our lives, our work, our family, our school, our holidays, or consumed with the weather and natural disasters or the latest crisis on the news. All the while forgetting who Christ is, what he has done, and who we are because of him, and what the future holds. You know, we might differ from the crowds in that we've come to see and trust in Jesus, and yet it's so easy to live like that all is simply not true. To come to church and sing about Jesus being alive and walk out the doors and live like he's still in the grave. Here's a question I want us to consider. When was the last time you simply paused to consider the moment of history you're in? You know, we believe Jesus didn't just die. He was raised. He's ascended. He's coming again. We believe that our lives are but dots on the vast line that is human history. And yet, we believe that what Jesus has achieved means we will not end our lives as a dot, but pass on to join Jesus on the line for all eternity. Here's another question for us to consider. Friends, church, knowing that the coming of Jesus has never been closer, Does how you're living make sense? How you're investing your time, how you're investing your talent, how you're investing your treasure. Are you telling yourself it's just a busy season? You know, if you're like me and you're prone to forget, you're prone to take your eyes off the prize, we need to regularly pause and remember the age we're in, that Jesus is alive, that his death means that death is defeated, that he's present in power through the Holy Spirit and he's coming again soon to reign. And that's our second point. We must prepare by giving careful attention to the age that we're in. But not just that, the final point of application Jesus wants us to see is thirdly, we must prepare by being sure that we've made peace with God. Read with me verses 57 to 59, it says this. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus tells the story of a man being taken to an official to settle a dispute about a debt. 
But the key to this story, which isn't obvious at first but implied, is that the man being taken to stand before the city official is actually guilty as charged. Jesus says anyone can see that it's in the guilty man's interest to try his absolute best to make peace with his accuser before coming to the city official. The city official will send them to a judge and the judge will send a bailiff for a sheriff and forcefully drag him to prison until his debts are paid. You know, it was horrible in the first century. It was common in the first century that prisoners in a debt prison would be beaten regularly in order to encourage the family to hurry up in repayment. And Jesus is emphatic. You will never get out. The way it's written is the strongest way of saying this. Not even a chance of ever until you have paid every last cent of what you owe. Jesus' point is this. Anyone can judge for themselves what's the right thing to do in this situation. If you're guilty on the road to the judge with the person you've ripped off, any person can see exactly what they need to do. Get on your hands and knees and you beg for mercy. You don't try your chances with the judge. You plead for a settlement beforehand. Okay, what does this mean? What is, what is Jesus talking about here? The final way you can prepare for the, his kingdom coming is to be absolutely sure you've made peace with God. You know, this week I've been asking myself a question about this parable. And the question is, what could possibly stop the man accused from making the obvious choice and settling his debts? Why wouldn't you do it? I think the answer is simple. A refusal to admit his guilt. And friends, with the passing of nearly 2,000 years, I believe the same obstacle faces our wider community more than ever before. Because we're wealthy, because we're hardworking, because we're law-abiding citizens, we believe we're good people and we feel little need for God or for forgiveness. I mean, we drive electric cars, we use keep cups, we buy responsibly sourced clothing, and we would never dream of saying anything intolerant, at least not publicly. I mean, what debts do we possibly have to settle with God? Surely, he owes us something for being such good stewards of the world. Friends, the answer to that question becomes obvious when we come back full circle to consider the problem of injustice in the world. See, injustice is about treating people unfairly. It's about treating them in a way they do not deserve. It's so horrendous to see children in comas this week on the news from operations to roof shrapnel from their heads. Because the truth is, the more poorly someone or something is treated, and the greater that person or object is worth, the greater the injustice. And just a, a thought experiment, just to get the point, I mean, it's been said before, imagine a person sitting on a park bench and you happen to be walking by, and that person has in their hand an insect and they squish it. I mean, you probably wouldn't think anything of it. But imagine that person sitting on the bench then has a bird in their hands. They take that bird and they wring its neck. 
you think, okay, that person's a bit of a sicko. Probably going to keep my distance. Imagine you walk past that same bench and that person has in their hand, not a bird, but a puppy. And they begin to strangle it in their hands. You probably get involved at that point. You probably want to get the RSPCA. You probably want to call out for help and, and stop it. Imagine that person sitting on that bench and in their hands, it's not an insect, it's not a bird, it's not a puppy, but it's a baby. And they begin to wring its neck. Well, my friends, in our culture, that is murder. Why does each act of killing become more and more unjust? The simple answer is that the worth of the creature increases from an insect to a baby. Think with me. According to the Bible, God is the most supremely valuable being in the universe. He's the maker and sustainer of all things. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If God really is the infinitely powerful and all supreme ruler of the universe who vastly exceeds all others in worth, the greatest injustices in this world are not those done by from people to people, but injustice directed to God. You know, many of us in the neighborhood are law-abiding citizens who have done a wonderful job in loving our neighbors and are to be commended for that. But that's not the real question to discover our goodness. The real question we must ask is, Have I loved God? Have I honored him with my life? Jesus himself says in Matthew 22 verse 37, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The great calling of God upon the life of every person is to love him with all. And this is where our corruption is revealed. We are guilty of great injustice for spurning God. And so on this road of life, we carry a great burden of debt because we have wronged God. Whether we are conscious of it or not, we are heading down the road to meet the judge. And friends, our heart to you as pastors of this church is that no man or woman would make the foolish mistake of refusing to admit their guilt and therefore fail to do business with God. Jesus says you'll be thrown in prison and you'll never ever be released until you have repaid. And friends, our debts are so great that we could never repay them. What could we possibly offer to God? And that is why Jesus longed to kindle the fire of God's judgment. That is why he embraced it in his baptism on the cross. That he might be able to settle your debts to God for you. And so I want to plead with you. Friends, put your trust in Jesus and allow him to settle your debts. Be sure you've prepared for when his kingdom comes. And be sure that you do not leave this room this morning until you've done business with God. On that note, let's pray and give thanks to God for sustaining me through this message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you for you are King of kings and Lord of lords and sovereign over all. Lord, as your people, we're reminded yet again by you, our our shepherd in chief, that so often we fail to remember you. That so often we get distracted by the things of this world and we fail to put 
our eyes, our gaze firmly upon you. Lord, how could we ever repay you for what you have done for us? You're glorious. To think that you eagerly desired to kindle the judgment of God on the cross. To think that that was your great burden, Lord, though it pained you such. You foresaw the agony and yet you desired to do it for us, Lord God. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to adore you, Lord. And therefore, help us be ready for when you come again. Lord, come soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, let's stand together.